Hello, and welcome to the Modern Maker Podcast. Today is August 23rd, 2018, otherwise known as Intergalactic, National, International, Local, whatever, Maker Brand Co. Launch Day. All right. Woo-woo! Big day. It is a big day, right? about this. I mean, it's a very big day. It's been eight months leading up to this. Yeah, I'm going on the uh, Wikipedia for August 23rd and making sure that this day is in there. Got to make it super official. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, before we get into all that kind of nonsense, let's talk about like what's been going on with everybody. So Chris, you want to lead us off? Sure. And actually, you know, because I haven't been doing that much lately, so I'm actually going to dedicate my time to somebody else. Wow. No, actually, I was just thinking about this. So you guys know Johnny Builds. I do. Participated in the challenges, been doing good work for a long time. So he had this video this week that like blew up. Like 100%. at the time of this recording, over a million views in less than a week. It's probably at two, two million views by the time this is coming out. But the reason that I bring him up is because some of you guys might remember, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe like six months or so, when the whole YouTube thing changed where you had to be at a higher level to monetize. And he actually wrote in. I can't remember if we were talking directly and I brought it up on the show or if he wrote into the show with a question about like he was right there on the fringe. So he was kind of one of those people that I guess you could say like had the rug pulled out from him or whatever. And I remember my advice to him at that time was like, don't even worry about that because you're making good stuff. Keep doing that. Keep getting better. Keep making good stuff. And like you're going to go flying past that point, whether it's two months later than it would have been, whatever. And so I think that's really cool to now see him, like, not even a year later, blowing up so big. Yeah, I mean, he's done projects for both of the challenges. He's from Oklahoma City, same as me. So yep. apparently there's something in the water down there because it's Local breeding boy YouTube good. legends. Future, <laughs> yeah. lo- future YouTube legends. <laughs> legends to be. <laughs> so, yeah, so shout out, shout out to Johnny. He's a, he's a real one. Yep. He's a detective. Yeah, he is. So he's been figuring out all the secrets to he making a solid YouTube algorithm. channel. Yeah. Well, Ben, what are you working on, man? We've been separated for this week, so you got to fill me in. Man, I have been welding. Like, lots of welding. As in, get up at 7, get out to the site, weld for 6 or 7 hours, go back home, send some emails, do a few things, and then go back and weld for like another 4 or 5 hours. Um, but I'm almost done. You've been taking the, the like one or two hours off in the middle of the day? Yeah, it's just too hot. We're almost done with all the welding for the containers. And nice. what happens is is basically every time there's a every place that there is a door or a window, we have to, you know, cut a hole in the corrugated steel. Mm-hmm. It's about an eighth of an inch thick. And then re weld in a frame. Now, I'm not doing continuous seams all the way around. That would take even longer. But I'm probably doing like three to four inch seams every six to eight inches because what you don't want is the corrugation to move differently from that because everything would be flappy. It's really windy out there Mm -hmm. and it could, you know, disrupt the insulation, things like that and just cause all sorts of problems. So you need to weld it enough so that the pieces all stay together. And we're welding on a generator. That actually adds like a degree of difficulty. We have a pretty powerful 8,000 watt generator, which is no joke. But I guess the the power that a generator puts out isn't quite as consistent or there's some little interruptions that make welding a little bit more difficult. It's also really windy. 
And you wouldn't think that wind would impact welding, right? Like it's just this this arc, especially if you're not using gas. I'm just using flux core. I did a little bit of stick welding, but I'm just more competent with MIG. And since the steel isn't that thick, MIG seems to make sense. But the wind is kind of an issue when you're on a ladder. And also you have like a giant welding helmet on. Oh, yeah, because right. <laughs> the, wind, the wind, if it's, if it's 20 to 30 mile an hour winds, like it's moving your helmet all around because <laughs> yeah. that, that helmet is like big and lightweight. So it like, it, mm-hmm. it, it, it does like a weird thing to your visibility when the little tiny game boy looking screen that you're looking through out of your welding helmet is vibrating and moving all around. Plus when it gets up to like 30 miles an hour, that's actually just a lot of force pushing on you to be on top of a ladder. Yeah. Right. So I had a a ladder that was set up to the top of the container. So the top of the container is about 10 feet above the ground. So the the ladder was leaning up against it. It's an aluminum ladder. It, it probably weighs 40 pounds. The wind would blow the ladder over even when it was perfectly level. And it's not like a ladder has like a ton of surface area to, to, to sort of get it. So it's been challenging and it's also really hot. So it's that balance of wearing enough protective gear to protect yourself without dying of heat stroke. So uh, I have a fireproof shirt on, which, you know, is some protection, but my whole left arm, it has like like a new set of like freckly little burn marks, probably like a hundred of them, like all up and down. So it's been a little bit rough, but uh, the end is in sight, at least for this sort of stage. I think we'll finish up all the welding probably this week. And uh, we have most of the windows installed now. It's starting to really come together. It kind of looks like a house. You can see the floor, uh, the floor plan now as sort of marked out by the walls. And uh, but yeah, it's been a little bit. It's been a long week. You know what? This is going to be. It's this is like your on deck circle moment of welding. So once it's like fall, and you're in Boston, and it's just like seventy degrees. You're gonna be welding like a champ. Once those ankle weights come off, right? Exactly. No mother right. nature to contend with. You're the best <laughs> welder ever. What do you got going, Mike? This week, I have been in. You've been out of town. Yes, I was in Columbus, Ohio, visiting the dudes at Urban Timber. So I mentioned it briefly on the podcast, if I remember correctly. But for those who didn't hear it, I'm going to recap it as quickly as possible. The Gary V conference tables that we've been talking about. Whenever we mentioned we were building them on Instagram. The dudes at Urban Timber hit us up and said, if you guys want to come out, we are happy to provide the slabs, help you build them, and all of this kind of stuff. Because they are 12 feet long, and that is a substantial tabletop. Especially if you're wanting to do some kind of slab live edge table that needs a lot of surfacing and flattening. So I booked a flight with about three days notice, went out to Columbus, and started working on these two tabletops. One is 12 and a half feet long, three feet wide. The other is 12 feet long, 4 feet wide. All are made out of ash slabs. Nice book match tops. And man, let me tell you, that was a lot of work. So essentially, it takes them about 10 days to get a table through their shop. We got two tables through their shop in four days. Yeah, we were were doing kind of what you were talking about, Ben. We were pulling 12, 14, 16-hour days every day. It was basically wake up, drink a lot of coffee, go work, leave, sleep and repeat. A lot of fun though. It was interesting seeing the difference between a full-on production shop that are kind of, they're not batching out projects because each one is unique, but it's a pretty standardized process to get 
slabs from you know rough lumber to getting them to a final table but what was really most interesting from from my point of view was how few pieces of machinery they really had which was awesome because that just meant they had so much open floor space to just spread out and work on these giant tables so to kind of round out the process that they normally do is they have this big one axis cnc called a wood whiz essentially it's got a big i think six inch or nine inch surfacing bit on it similar to the router bits that you would get for flattening a slab just gigantic version of that it basically goes down the x-axis on its own and you control the y-axis manually okay i think it can surface 16 feet long boards and six foot wide we just glued up these giant tables ran them through that and then cut everything with a track saw sanded with the festool rotexes it was basically three tools track saw sander and that surfacer And they're able to build these giant tables and just do commission after commission and just really batch them out quickly. Yeah, it was an interesting shop. I saw some of the footage that you produced and it's both a minimal shop, meaning it doesn't have like a million tools, but each type of tool that it has is a really effective high-end one. Exactly. Um, and, And it has what I think is the most important thing in a shop, which isn't tools. It's just lots of extra staging space to move things around. Totally. What was funny is they basically have sawhorses everywhere. They've got the cheap, I think the Bronco boards are what they're called. The ones that you get at Home Depot for 18 bucks or something. They're the cheap wooden ones. And they're great because they all just stack on top of each other. So essentially, when you're storing these sawhorses, you could be storing five of them or 50 of them. And they essentially take up the same amount of space. Are you talking about Burrow brand? Is it Burrow? I I thought it was. What did I I say? Bronco? Bronco. Oh, in well, Denver. it's got a donkey They changed their name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's Burrow. got a donkey logo. I don't know why that... I mean, obviously, a, donk, a donkey isn't a Bronco, but... <laughs> well, <laughs> They're cousins. It's like a Bronco with less of a vertical leap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a non-athletic... More, it's like yeah. their unathletic cousin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, long week. Anyways. But yeah, so they just set up these sawhorse stations all over the place, which has gotten me really excited about coming up with a unique sawhorse for the workflow that kind of we typically have, because... We're always pulling saw horses or just random bad two by four workbenches around so that we can build stuff. And I think standardizing that process is is pretty cool because they're able to just move their tables around from station to station and just really just have a, a very feng shui shop with tons of open space. Very nice. Now, let me ask a quick question. So I saw when you shared on your story, I thought it was like a sander or something where you were kind of controlling it where you weren't touching it directly, but it was almost like mimicking your movement on a handle that you were holding. Was that the CNC thing that you were talking about or was that a sander? It was. It's called a wood whiz. Okay, so that is it. I thought it was just a sander for some reason. It is it. So this is a really cool machine that I kind of forgot to go into that detail of it. So it's got this giant six inch or nine inch surfacing bit on it that you go up and down the table to get them flattened. But then you it has a sanding pad that you just screw in right underneath the blade without even removing it. And then you can go sand through the rough grits, get through any chip out, and then take it and sand down with the Rotex from there. Nice. That's really cool. It was. So the video is going to be coming out probably in two weeks, maybe three. It's not anything that's going to be out when you're listening to this because we still got to weld up the bases. I'm going to be building one out of plate steel. Ben will be probably using some three-quarter inch steel bar coming up with something with that. And once we get those done... We just got to throw them in a U-Haul and drive them to L.A. and hopefully get them inside of the building. 
One is going on the first floor. One will be on the second. So I'm going to have to follow up with an email to the interior designer pretty soon saying, I hope you know how you're getting these into the building because if not, we're leaving them on the curb. <laughs> some nice dining tables. <laughs> like for we the, will uh... be there for the day, and if it's if we can't get it in by the t- by the day, then it, it's y'all's and it's on the sidewalk. But but yeah, I'm excited. It was really cool seeing just the difference between being a kind of generalist, building one-off projects and doing something different every time to seeing people that have just really figured out this system and made it as efficient as possible for the desired outcome that they want. So Yeah, so be sure to check out Urban Timber on Instagram. And it's urban without an A, so it's just U-R-B-N Timber. Exactly. And if you're in the Columbus area, go buy some slabs from them. Go buy a table from them. What's really cool is you can buy slabs, and it costs basically 100 bucks to get it surfaced. If I were building tables, and if I were buying live-edge slabs, and I had that available, I would do that absolutely. Because then you don't have to build a router jig. You don't have to do all this like nonsense sanding. It's yeah. great. 100 bucks is probably a lot cheaper than a wood whiz. Exactly. So yeah, check out those videos when they come out. They're going to have a ton of little tips. Nice. For epoxy pours, for working with slabs, to finishing them, all the ins and outs. I'm, I'm basically stealing all of their trade secrets and putting <laughs> them in the content. So you're welcome, people. No, I'm kidding. So thanks again to the, to the dudes at Urban Timber. And yeah, definitely follow them. They're awesome guys. And they've got a really great Instagram feed. They do a really good job of curating that. All right. So uh, what are we talking about today? Talk about Maker Brand. Maker Brand has officially launched. We are launching with four products, two clamps and two finishes. I'm going to let Chris talk about the finishes because he's the man when it comes to that. Yeah. But I'm going to talk about the clamps really fast. Do it. We are releasing simple, sturdy steel clamps, one being an F-style clamp. But what we've done is remove all possible points of failure, essentially. Compared to a traditional one, rather than having some kind of kind of spring mechanism that's allowing the what I would call the, the active jaw to slide up and down and all of this stuff, it really just uses friction. Uh, once you start putting pressure on the clamp, it holds itself in place. So you're not relying on any kind of cheap little spring that if it comes out, you've got a useless clamp now. They've got really sturdy plastic pads that stay in place on the clamp really well. Obviously, they're not indestructible. No plastic is indestructible, but compared to the F-style clamps that you're going to get at Home Depot or Harbor Freight, these are definitely going to stay on there a lot longer. And then the third cool thing about the F-style is they've got a little bit deeper of a kind of mouth than a lot of them that you'll see around. So hopefully that's a convenient thing that can kind of get you into places that you traditionally couldn't. The other product that I want to talk about is my favorite because it's called the mic, the mic clamp. clamp. The mic clamp. This is this is my baby here. So what we've done is we've taken a giant steel truss that is a T-shaped truss and put cast iron jaws on it. So not a single plastic part on this clamp. It has the most travel of any clamp of its type in the game. It's got incredibly strong clamping force, really good torque, and the pin on the end that you use to actually turn it is a lot longer than most. So if you're trying to get some 2x4s pushed into place, you don't have to really reach for a cheater bar, which is going to eventually break your clamps. We've just made it sturdy enough and the handle long enough that you should hopefully be able to get enough torque to not need that cheater bar. What else can I say? It's strong, it's sturdy, and it's steel. It costs a little bit extra to ship it that way, but it's going to be a better product that's going to last forever. So, Chris, yes, let's hear about those finishes. Yes. Okay, so two finishes. We got 
a clear oil finish penetrating oil and then we have another one that's a penetrating oil with a wax sealer so they're kind of similar the one might be a little bit more robust than the other i've used them both a lot i love them like i'm not just saying that because they're ours but i mean maybe the reason that i do love them is because they're ours or because we put that extra work into them but i'm like super super proud of these things absolutely it's definitely going to be the only finish that I'm using from now on. I know that finish is one of those things that like everybody's always looking for the easy way out. And that's why we always get so many questions about it. And so that was kind of the goal with this is like, let's make something that's just super easy to use to get a good finish. And that's exactly what this is. So the way that I apply it, I just use an old t-shirt. You basically rub it on. It's going to penetrate into the wood. Then after like 10 or 15 minutes, kind of depending on your environment, you rub on another coat and then again, let it sit for a few minutes and wipe off whatever didn't absorb into the wood. Like two coats, you're good to go. And seriously, I get like such a good finish with this stuff. When you use it, it just has like a good smell to it and everything. I'm not telling you, don't don't put your nose up to it and just breathe it all in. It is not toxic. It's all plant-based. It's all plant-based, non-toxic, 100% pure. It's what we put on the bottle. But then after you wipe it off, you let it set for a day and it's kind of cured and hardened, ready for light use. And then after a couple weeks, it's ready to stand the test of normal use. Right. Yeah. It's going to take, it's going to be fine for you to like handle. You just don't want to abuse it after. I mean, even honestly, within an hour, you can handle it a little bit, but I know. Okay. So I'm going to do a little plea here. So the price point on it, it's like 32 bucks, right? Which is I'll admit it's on the more expensive side of finish, but that's as cheap as we can get it with the economies of scale that we have right now. But I would just, if you're at all interested, I would seriously urge you to check it out. Reason being, just think about it like this. Like, you know, you put a ton of time into the projects that you build, right? And you're going to get a lot of use out of even just one can of finish. It's going to be good for several projects. So just think about it. If you had something that like you knew you were getting a good finish out of, you enjoyed using it, it was pretty much foolproof, and you could get five products out of that, like per project, it's pretty, it's actually pretty inexpensive when you think about it that way. So yeah. I don't know. I would just really, really like anybody who can try this thing out to try it out. And then, you know, if you do hate it, I want to hear about it. Like I want to hear people's genuine feedback about everything that we're working on, but I'm super, super, super interested in hearing what people say about the finish because I want to know if I'm crazy. Like I love the stuff. I don't know if I'm just like crazy passionate about it or what, but I really just want to hear how people react to it. Yeah. I was really impressed with the finish. I used the clear penetrating oil. Uh, that was the most recent project that I used it on was the coffee table, the one with the live edge slabs and the white epoxy. And for one, I was really excited about using it because it was an oil rather than Mm -hmm. a top coat. So I could let it really pull up and soak into those slabs because it was just a bunch of end grain. But then once it had soaked in and I buffed everything off, the epoxy still stayed white because it doesn't have any, like it can't penetrate into it. And because it doesn't have a top coat, it doesn't amber that and it just comes off cleanly. So it's beautiful. And then to that note, what's really awesome is just, it's just so simple. You let it soak in, and then whenever it's done soaking in, you just wipe it off, and it hardens, and it looks amazing. So if you're doing doing 90% of your projects, my personal recommendation is just the clear penetrating oil. If you're doing a coffee table, maybe a dining table, something that's going to get a lot of use, 
maybe some cups without coasters on it, things like that, then I would recommend the one with the wax sealer. That's just going to give it that extra bit of protection. But what's great about the clear penetrating oil is once it soaks into the wood, once it hardens, whenever you're touching whatever you built, you're touching the wood. You're not touching the polycrylic on top of the wood. You're not touching the polyurethane on top of the wood. You're actually touching what you built. You're touching the wood. It feels natural and it doesn't feel just like you're touching plastic. So couldn't be more excited. Couldn't be more proud of how good it works. Links are in the in the podcast notes. It is makerbrandco.com. You can find everything there. If you're not already, make sure to follow us at makerbrandco on Instagram. That's where we'll be throwing up new products as we go. That's where we'll be asking you guys for feedback, all of that kind of stuff. So once again, huge thank you. Kind of like what Chris said. We're putting so much time and effort into this, trying to get as good of stuff as we can. And it's just, it's awesome seeing it come to fruition. And from everything I've heard from the people that are getting their clamps that pre-ordered it, that are shouting us out, everything there, it's killer. We've been getting awesome feedback and I'm just excited just to see how far this thing can go. Yeah, Mike Mike was pretty dead on with that. The, the other thing that I was just going to add to what he said about a penetrating oil, especially if you're keeping it, the great thing is like, if you are one of those, so, okay, there's kind of two ways you could go, right? You want to protect your furniture so that you can have it forever, right? So you built a table and let's say you put a real thick polyurethane top coat on it, right? Something mm-hmm. happens to that and then you have to refinish it. It's a pain mm. in the butt. Like you got to strip, get down through several layers to get back to the wood and then refinish. With the awesome thing about something like a penetrating oil is you can like sand with basically 180, 220, couple minutes, put another two coats on and it's like back to new. Yeah. So yeah. it's actually, there's a lot of situations where, I don't know what the right word is. Um, I don't want to say less durable, but like a lighter finish actually will keep the furniture looking better longer. It seems kind of counterintuitive, but. A hundred percent. So, all right, we're going to quit talking about this. We're going to quit with the self promos, but thank sell. you again, everybody that orders, everybody that's interested, go check it out. And if you don't get it, Shame too bad for you. you. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> no, we're just kidding. We love yeah. everybody. But no. today we have a question, a solid question from an Instagram follower of ours. And he is at Ryan Wills. Thank you for the question. Here it is. Hi, happy listener here. Blah, blah, blah. Compliments. Thank you very much. But then it goes on to saying, for those who are just starting out, how do you go about balancing buying inexpensive, possibly lower quality materials versus buying more expensive materials when you're not confident the project will work? I always end up buying cheaper materials since I don't want to waste money in case I screw up, but inevitably regret it since it's harder to work with warped boards. And, you know, at the end of the day, it might not be the species of wood or, or the quality of plywood that he, that he wanted at the beginning. Yep. Quality doesn't always mean the same things to different people. When it comes to, so he brought up the the topic of of warped boards, right? Well, plywood is an inexpensive material that's less warped or less prone to warpage than a, you know, solid lumber, even that might be way more expensive. MDF isn't considered a high quality thing, but it's something that's really high performance in terms of warpage. It may not have the high kind of cultural value or the high aesthetic value that some people like. You know, high quality doesn't mean high performance all the time. Some of the cheapest materials are the highest performing. They just might not have the look. Now, in my mind, 
that creates aesthetic opportunities. If you figure out how to make, you know, MDF or plywood look good, you open up a whole lot of possibilities to yourself, whereas a lot of people can make walnut look good. Another good example is our buddy, the wood pastor. He's been doing some really nice projects. So check him out on Instagram. The Yeah, check him out on, uh, yeah, check him out on Instagram, the wood pastor. Uh, he's been using poplar, in, which is a inexpensive wood, but it's actually a very high performance. It has a really good, consistent grain. It's very easy to work with. And he's used it to kind of create these sort of gradient sunset looking, almost like landscape kind of patterns with uh, uh, poplar boards that kind of like fade from different colors. So that's a great example of taking something that you know might be considered a little bit inexpensive or more common but using it in an uncommon way and then also taking advantage of the secondary characteristics with how well it sort of performs and how well it machines you know it wasn't that long ago that they were feeding lobster to prisoners because they thought it was you know garbage food that was readily available tastes change all the time but if you figure out innovative ways to you know look beyond the cultural value of things and look at their actual physical properties and then apply creative ideas that will bring cultural value to them. Absolutely. And then I think to to speak to the question rather than kind of just broadly is I think it's kind of one of those situations where you really choose your battle. If you're just building a simple desk that you know is kind of one of those things that you're going to grow out of in a few years or you probably won't take with you if you move. Perfect. Don't sink all your time and effort into that one or maybe sink the time and effort but not the money. But if you're going to be building your skills up to a point where you you think you're comfortable building those kind of projects that you'll keep with you, move with you from house to house, those kind of heirloom pieces, those are the ones to really spring for. Because there are the projects where you want to push yourself creatively from a design sense and you may mess up. I mean, Chris, you've yep. been messing around with a lot of like interesting angles and geometry and things like that. Do mm-hmm. you find yourself ever making mistakes? And when you do, how do you usually work around them or fix them. Yeah, I mean, you definitely make mistakes. But one of the points that I was going to bring up, and it's something that I've said a few times, is that I feel like actually having that higher end uh, material or like pushing yourself with a more complex thing can get you to kind of elevate your game a little bit and force you into places that maybe you wouldn't have gone before because, I don't know, you're trying to perform under that pressure or whatever, putting that extra pressure on yourself. Absolutely. I kind of, so hearing this question, I know it's always hard to make generalizations, but the first thing that popped into my head was kind of a generalization. So it was, if you're prototyping something, go ahead and go cheap because you're experimenting with it. And kind of like you were saying, Mike, about, you know, if it's going to be an heirloom thing, you're going to keep, go ahead and spring for that good material. I say the same thing. If it's going to be something you're going to keep for yourself, get the good material. I I, I think it's going to help you just like putting that pressure on yourself. I also think that it's very rare that you're going to make one cut that's going to ruin an entire project. Like you might ruin a tiny little bit of wood, but you know, it's not going to be anything that's going to break the bank in terms of the way that the project is going. Yeah. And another on that kind of point is when you have a little bit more costly material. So with the same live edge epoxy table I had, I didn't want to buy three olive wood slabs because they were expensive. So I Mm -hmm. bought two and then I knew I wanted a, some of the pieces kind of spilling from the outside into the table. And so I used the offcuts to do that. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of flows that same way with maybe plywood projects is if you know you're using marine grade plywood or you're using Baltic birch plywood and it would be easy to get the project out of three pieces of plywood, but you could probably squeeze something or do some kind of creative challenge to get it out of two instead. That's always a cool way to get yourself out of your boundaries. It's similar to what we were trying to do with the two two by four challenge or with the single sheet of plywood challenge is if you can do like a little personal personal kind of competition to to squeeze out the same quality of project out of one less sheet of plywood or one or two less walnut boards, that's fun. You know, it's creative. Yeah, and also also think about the whole context of things. So sometimes you might look at like a an expensive slab and be like, wow, that's a, that's a big ticket item. I'm going to spend a hundred dollars on that one, on that one piece of wood. And I've never spent that much money on that. And that makes the project expensive. Right. But again, uh, think of it like sort of like a steak dinner versus a burger. If you have to go out and buy the buns, the lettuce, the tomato and the ketchup and all those things, if you don't have those already in stock, the burger can actually end up costing more than the steak if you just serve the steak with one side, right? So pick your battles in terms of that way too. It's like if you have to go out and buy a whole bunch of like little hardware things and stuff like that, those can all add up, you know, $5 here, $3 here. So sometimes spending a lot of money on one big simple thing that's going to be the feature can that that can carry the project so much that you can be more minimal with the other things and often make up for some of the costs spent. Yeah. And actually, so going back, Mike, when you threw this question to me, you were talking about like times that I've messed up. So I was thinking about that. And actually of the times that I have had a mess up that like, oh man, I'm going to have to like rebuild this one little section of the piece or whatever. The part of it that has bugged me has always been the labor part of it. It's never been the material that like, oh man, I wasted $20 of material or whatever, because that rarely happens. So if anything, it's the, oh man, I have to spend another hour getting back to where I was with this thing, setting up the machines again. Or if it did have to do with the material, it would actually be the fact that, oh shoot, I don't have enough material to finish this now. I'm gonna have to spend the time to go get more. Yeah, so it always comes back to time. Yeah, it always has to do with the time rather than, the the cost of the material that's i mean when you're doing these kinds of things it's labor is it's your time is the the value that you're putting into these things absolutely and one place that this whole kind of concept is making me think about is just in home building and kind of architecture we were scrolling through pinterest the other day ben there was this one really great home that Rather than just doing a simple OSB subfloor and then putting whatever hardwoods over top of it, they Mm -hmm. took the time to, one, sand the OSB so it's really nice, but put dividers between each of the 4 by 8 sheets of OSB. And so essentially it was raw OSB that was sanded and had a really nice finish on it, but then it was basically an inch strip dividing each of the sheets, Mm -hmm. and those strips were white. And then it had just like clean white walls and just like a good minimalist look. And it just looked awesome. And in that instance, compared to just throwing some hardwood floors over it, there was so much more visual and artistic impact for way less money than what they would have spent on all of that hardwood and then all of the kind of tools and the time that it takes to install that. In certain instances, of course, having better materials does go a long way. But a lot of times, if you can be creative and be resourceful and maybe spend a little bit of extra time rather than spending extra money, 
you can get the same kind of impact or the same kind of one-two punch out of a project, but rather than doing a jab and a hook, you're doing a jab and a and a little uppercut, something else, you know? Throw a little one-three. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. The, the other thing I would say to, to sort of add on to that, that you brought up the sort of architecture scale is to also think about the negative space. I mean, we see it so much when we're filming things that just having empty space makes everything that you're filming look better if you because you can kind of center it. You can really have a little bit more flexibility where in a cluttered space, you know, things can kind of get camouflaged into it. Thinking about the sort of scale of things also sort of matters, whether you sort of go really sort of miniature and make it kind of a cute version of something that people might be used to be seeing as bigger or making sort of a bigger, oversized, more luxurious thing of something that people have always felt is a little bit cramped. There's a lot of ways to add perceived value by sort of not adding more expensive ingredients, but by simply changing the scale of things. I think a great example that me and Mike have been talking about is a really big wardrobe. A lot of people don't have big enough closet spaces. You know, when I was in Boston and I'd visit a lot of my friends, it's like these are all, you know, apartments or buildings that might be 60 to 100 years old. So the closets were tiny. Mm -hmm. They were like, you know, four feet wide, whereas people have a lot more stuff now. So a big wardrobe is an excellent project, but they're often really, really expensive. And a lot of people don't, you know, if they have sort of these honey-colored wood floors, another big, heavy wooden thing in a small room doesn't have a great aesthetic. So in those kind of situations, a big plywood, just clean-looking, simple wardrobe where they could hang up more clothes and have a few drawers in it as well might be the thing that actually looks the best in that room. So maybe this is a situation where you take MDF and you take your circular saw and you cut a bunch of grooves into it and you give it this really cool textured pattern and then you hit it with a really nice sort of matte paint. So it has this like three-dimensional texture. You've totally invented your own way of doing that. And it could be the total hotness, even though it's still made out of what? What's MDF for like a four page sheet, like 20 bucks? Also, it's an incredibly flat material. So you're going to be able to get, you know, nice, clean lines and uh, without a lot of warpage. There's no knots. And you know what I love about MDF is it's so smooth. You don't have to sand it if you're going to paint it. All you got to do is just sand your corners and make sure they're flush. Yeah. And you get that nice, that real nice wood dust. <laughs> oh, yeah. That extra uh, toxic dust. Make or, sure you got an RZ mask. Right. Or or, <laughs> or, or go with the sort of pine, uh, the pine plywood that has a really dramatic grain. But maybe this time, you, you know, because you're saving money, you're getting it for $30 a sheet, hit it with a really dramatic, like a blue colored transparent gel stain right you can you can be a little bit riskier with it so think about the the think about not just the piece that you're making think about the room that it's going in and if it's a small room that's already kind of dark maybe walnut isn't the best choice even though it might be your favorite wood species a hundred percent i see that all the time a walnut piece photographed in a room with dark floors and medium walls and all and not incredible lighting and it really honestly makes the piece look bad whereas if they built it out of a lighter toned wood. I'm not saying it has to be pine, but even if it was maple or birch or poplar, uh, it would really go a long way to kind of even out the room. But whenever you mention scale, I think this is a kind of a good thought to close this on is if you are somebody that's scared of making mistakes and someone that's maybe a little more prone than the other is if, if the goal is to make this beautiful walnut, maple, oak, whatever it is, dining table, like that's the end all goal. Don't start with that. Build a side table. 
then build a coffee table, then build a console, then a dining table. That way, if you do mess up and you totally ruin the materials for that project, it was for an end table and it costs 20% what it would have if you made that same mistake on a dining table. As much as you can scale your projects, also scale your mistakes that you'll make along the way, or at least, you know, plan accordingly. Mike, as you went into that, I was pretty, I was pretty certain you were going to say build a one thirty second scale for the Garys. You know what? That's that, that's that's the real advice. Yes, there you go. Just build furniture for Garys until you get your get your solid groundwork of skills, and then start building furniture for dogs. Yeah, just work your way up. Eventually, uh-huh. you'll be building things for blue whales. Yeah, yeah. You'll pass humans after a while. It'll just get way too way too small, and you'll have to step it up. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, what have you guys been obsessed with? Can I go? Yes. Go. All right. So, if you got Netflix, you need to watch this Vietnam War documentary from Ken Burns. Feeling good. It's very good. It's long. I'm not going to lie. It's a 10-part series, and they're all between an hour and an hour and a half. But I've been on a plane quite a bit, and so I've gotten through most all of it. But it's just really interesting. From somebody that wasn't alive during it or the subsequent decades... It's cool hearing kind of the the social aspect of the war and how opinions and objectives and everything changed as the war progressed. I felt like I learned a lot about it. And if you're somebody that is interested in history, or even if you're just interested in documentaries, Ken Burns is a great director. He does a really good job of using war footage, but creating mm-hmm. a narrative with it. Using it the same way, you know, if I was if I were an editor or a director and someone gave me all of this footage that they shot for, let's say, a documentary or a commercial. He used it that same way, but this is all real-life stuff that he was able to string together and create story arcs with what I would assume to be mismatched war footage, but it all just looks so seamless and congruent. Right. What about I you, was, Chris? Mine is, so I don't think I talked about this on the podcast, but I've uh, been accepting the fact that I'm probably going to be in my workspace for a while in my garage so i'm okay. trying to think about how i can make it better because yeah, I'm, you, I'm, you mentioned yeah, it a little about, bit yeah i'm kind of outgrowing it right uh-huh. so as i've been thinking more now the past couple of days i've had a new thought and that is i should do something to change my garage door so basically Whoa. you know i got the roll up or not the roll up i'm sorry the one that rides on tracks covers like half of the garage the ceiling in the garage basically which Two things. So first off, it just takes up a bunch of space that I could have like open rafters above me that I could utilize. Oh, are you going to get one of the fold out doors that create a canopy? There's a couple things that I'm looking at. There's these like industrial like roll up where it rolls up into like a drum. You yep. know what I'm talking about? So there's those ones that I've kind of looked at a little bit. And then there's also the option to have it be like a fence that like opens up in two sections, right? So what would be really cool is if I could do like a bifold one, but I think yeah. that's like getting too fancy. They're they're expensive, but they're they're I think the nicest. They're similar to like airplane hanger doors sometimes. Right. So if I were to do, so I was looking like I was like, okay, more realistically, maybe I could do something where it's just two pieces. I, I have to measure my garage, but it's probably like a 16, 17 foot long garage door, something like that. Mm-hmm. So let's just say it's 16. So if it's in two in halves, the one is going to come out like eight feet, which is going to partially cover the steps or like not, it wouldn't cover the steps, but it would block like how you walk into my house essentially. But it would be a pretty easy fix with a little bit of concrete to just kind of like reroute that path and elongate the step in front of the porch so that like you naturally could enter in in a space that was a little bit further down so it wouldn't be that big of an issue um 
So yeah, I'm just kind of exploring those two ideas to see what is most realistic. The other cool thing about doing it is that like the lighting in my shop is terrible for working. Basically where I do the bulk of my work at my workbench, just because of the way that I have it set up for like filming and everything else is where I can't really even get light to it because it would be covered up by the garage door right now. Skylights. Yeah. So opening that up, I would just be able to light the whole space better. I think it would just be, it would really open things up for me quite a bit. That one change would like open up a ton of usable room in different parts of the garage. Man, I'll tell you what, being at the Urban Timber shop, they have a, it's an old, I would assume, built kind of around World War II era, just big industrial kind of cement block building. I don't know how many square foot it is. If I had to take a guess, I'd say it's around like eight to 10,000 square feet. But that has their kind of like offices, their showroom, and their workshop. But what's great is they've just got white cement block walls with windows every eight feet on every exterior wall. And they're big, huge, four foot by four foot windows, maybe even bigger than that. And so the amount of light that just pours into this space, it was what we were talking about earlier in the episode, is when you've got room to, one, spread out your your work, like whatever you're building, that's awesome. But when you have room to just move your camera around and you don't have those dead spots where it's like, oh, I don't like getting that corner of the shop in the shop because it's dark and it's a little dingy. And mm-hmm. so you kind of maybe compromise on the shot that you would get so that it's a little more balanced for the video. It's cool. Like if you can just get one really evenly lit, just awesome shop, that would be killer, Chris. Because yours yeah. already looks really good from the get-go with it being so so well lit from the front. Yeah. My suggestion would be skylights. Like my, my first shop where I shot probably like my first 40 or 50 videos had no windows, just a skylight, but it was an all white room. And, you know, during the daytime, it was it was fantastic because it was always sort of indirect ambient light and sort of everything was bright. The thing that actually might be interesting is, I mean, I think ideal would be like a bifold door that kind of opens up, you know, where Mm -hmm. it folds in half and then lifts up. So it creates like a half length awning or canopy. Mm -hmm. The simplest weird option would be like a single hinge and put the hinge on the side that's on the street and it's just one big long door because then you have that whole wall that rolls out. You've got a whole new filming wall. Now, you wouldn't be able to anchor that. It would be too long of a cantilever to just do on hinges that support all the weight of the wall. Like a wheel on the ground? You would do a wheel with a spring so that even if the ground isn't flat, it will always stay in contact and support ah. it just enough because you don't need it to take the wheel or the hinges to take all the weight. You just need them to share it. But then if you made that, like let, even just say if you had that wall as like a, you know, uh, you could make it part polycarbonate if you wanted to get light in uh, and keep it really lightweight and a material that's still done. So you could do kind of like uh, wood and a polycarbonate combination could look great and uh, or even like a, you know, and keep the weight down. But I think there's, well, I also think it would be an awesome project to just make your own custom door. Man, I'll tell you what, April Wilkerson has been putting out a few videos of those giant kind of gates for her property. And I've loved watching those. Just seeing kind of out of the box giant projects is always fun. So if you could build it, I would 100% recommend it. Yeah. Ben, tell me that. So one more time, the bifold thing that you were talking about, it wasn't where it just folds sideways twice. It was, it folded up? Well, I mean, bifolding just means, you know, folding twice. But the yeah. the ones that uh, I've looked into were, 
I think they're called like uh, they're a type of airplane hanger doors. But it's where the garage door is one single solid panel. Uh, two panels. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and, but and but they're they they are they have a horizontal seam across mm-hmm. them, so the bottom half folds into the top half, and when they're open, it creates an awning that kind of sticks out about half the height of the door because it's folded ah. twice. And nothing would come inside of the garage; everything would go outside of the garage. That's what's really nice about them. So I was looking at them for making kind of like a loft, a live work kind of loft workshop space. And what I liked about them is that you it wouldn't screw up the ceiling, right? Because a lot of garage doors, if you have like ceiling lights or ceiling fans, they come in and they, they steal that ceiling space. Right. And if you have a real high ceiling, that's even worse because the door might just intersect it because the door isn't as high as that. So uh, bifolding uh, airplane hangar doors are, are a cool option to look at. But they're expensive. They're like a probably for your garage... And especially if you got like a glass one or a translucent uh, polycarbonate one, it'd probably be like an $8,000 door. But sponsor. <laughs> hey, yeah. I'll do it. But I think it's like uh, Titan is the is a company that makes uh, pretty nice ones. Cool. Awesome. And they're the sponsor for this ideas. podcast. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes. Hey, Titan. So for me, mine is an Instagram account from uh, a guy I've been following for a long time. I've talked to him a few times. Nice dude. Uh, his name's Luke, and his Instagram account is the Luke Lamp Company. Just uh, nothing else. And he's a he's a young guy. He's in uh, I think he's in like a New York, uh, somewhere on the East Coast. Super young, and he's just making really cool light fixtures. And the ones he's working on now are starting to get a lot of traction and a lot of notice because he sort of takes these like nylon ropes and then runs light through them and it basically looks like wonder woman's like golden lasso but it's real and uh yeah i'm just excited to see a young person sort of you know making a name for himself and doing really cool stuff and he's just got a he's got a good aesthetic and he's 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 tried a lot of stuff he's tried kickstarter campaigns and he's just someone out there that's that's hustling a lot. Uh, doesn't look like everything he's doing is like a, a home run. You know, he, he he's reached out to me sometime sometime in the past to promote a Kickstarter campaign that you know didn't didn't I think uh, really go too far. But he he's one of those people that just keeps trying and keeps making new stuff. And now it looks like it's finally finally paying off. So it's another that's just awesome. great example of like you know sometimes the first things you try or the thing you think is going to be big doesn't go big. But that doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means you're just getting started and you have one less thing to to try. So, so check him out, Luke Lamp Company, and tell him we sent you. And uh, yeah, leave leave him a few comments. And uh, people people always love that. But yeah, his, his stuff's awesome. You won't regret it. Absolutely. So his Instagram will be tagged below along with the website for makeabrandco.com. That's right. I just said it. But you can click it in the podcast notes. Thank you, everybody that orders things. Y'all are amazing. And as, as you get them, please give us your feedback. Like we said, the only way we can make, continue to make things better is to know what you love about it and what you hate about it. If you're not already, we would love for you guys to be following us on Instagram personally. I am at Modern Builds. Ben is at Benjamin Ueda. And Chris is at Four Eyes Furniture. Yes. Collectively, we are at Modern Builds. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and have a great rest of your week. And until next time, this has been the Modern Maker Podcast. Bye, everybody. See ya. Peace out. You just made us collectively part of your channel again, Mike. Just like did you I say did collectively, in the live we're at Modern Builds. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. People oh, know sorry. what you mean. Collectively, we're at Modern Maker Podcast. There Bye, everybody. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>
Right. Stop.